Last time we spoke about the Allied losses along the Kokoda track, the Japanese unleashed General Hori upon the Allies, smashing them at Deniki, and then forcing them to flee Izurava, only to get smashed again. From that point on, the Allies were forced to make a fighting withdrawal from Izurava to Alola, Iora, Templeton's Crossing, Meola, and lastly, Ifogi. The Japanese had managed to reach the peak of the Owen Stanley Range, and from there it would literally be downhill to Port Moresby. Things were truly dire for the Allies. We then ventured back to Guadalcanal, where the 5th Marines led by Lieutenant Colonel William Maxwell had a little adventure going past the Matanikau. That lackluster trip would cost Maxwell his command. We also explored the Tokyo Express and how the Japanese logistics were literally grabbing at straws to deal with the issue that was Guadalcanal. However, today we are venturing back to Green Hell. This episode is the Milna Bay Counteroffensive. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast, Over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you still want some more history, why don't you check my personal channel out at the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I have content going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Back on August the 24th, the Japanese had performed an amphibious pincer attack upon Milne Bay. The original plan was for a force of the Kure 5th SNLF Marines and the Sasebo 5th SNLF Marines to land at Rabi, around three miles east of Gili Gili, while another group made up of the Sasebo 5th SNLF would land on Goodenough Island and use barges to hit north of Milne Bay and make an overland march to hit the Allies' rear. The plan went to absolute dog shit. When the Japanese landed on Goodenough Island and decided to have a little picnic because they were making good time, well, the Allies spotted them and bombed the hell out of their barges, stranding them on the island. The unsung heroes, those being the Coast Watchers, had yet again foiled the Japanese plans. Kitty Hawks tore the barges apart, and it would take literally months to get the Japanese units off Goodenough Island. Meanwhile, the other group managed to sneak into Milne Bay landed and began unloading all of their equipment, only to find out they landed in the wrong place. They ended up several miles east of Rabi, near a village called Wagga Wagga. You really gotta love the names in this region. They were soon met by Kitty Hawks, who tore apart their transports and forced the IGN to flee the bay in haste. All of the Japanese barges were destroyed as a result, stranding the Japanese units far away from their objective but they carried on foot over muddy coastal tracks and swamps nonetheless to hit Gili Gili. As bad as things looked for the Japanese, 
They did have two Hago tanks with them, and they began to force the Australian defenders into a fighting withdrawal. During the initial days of their trek, the Japanese had to lay low for the day to escape the insistent attacks from Kitty Hawks. But during the night, which was pitch black due to low rain clouds that covered the moon, the invaders kind of lived like vampires, silently moving into position to commence their attacks. The strategy worked wonders for Commander Hayashi, who successfully pushed back the defenders towards the Gamma River by August the 27th. The Australians put up a valiant fight at the Gamma River, but the two Japanese tanks certainly were tipping the scale, and soon the Australians were fleeing with the Japanese close on their heels. The Australians fled all the way to airfield number 3, which was still under construction, where they established a new defensive line. By the early hours of August the 28th, as the Japanese advanced into the unfinished Rabi airfield number 3, their tanks got repeatedly bogged down in sodden track. Their engines showing signs of strain after pushing all day through the mud. Inevitably, both of the tanks would become irretrievably stuck near Rabi, and the troops would have to continue without the strong support of their tanks. The new Allied defensive line, established around the incomplete airfield, was manned by the 61st and 25th Infantry Battalions, alongside the American 709th Anti-Aircraft Battery and two companies of American engineers. The incomplete runway provided a perfect killing field. To its sides, it was very thick with mud, too much to cross. Thus, the Japanese would have no choice but to make a frontal attack across the open strip. The two Australian battalions held most of the battle line, while the American anti-aircraft battery and their .50 caliber machine guns provided support at the eastern end. The American engineers joined the Australian motor crews around the center with their own .50 calibers and 37mm guns aimed on the coastal track crossing the runway. At dawn on August the 28th, the Japanese launched their attack, but they had lost their tanks after all. As I had already mentioned, it turns out the two tanks had finally got stuck in waist-deep mud and they had to be abandoned. The initial Japanese assault was repelled, and as the sun rose up, Kitty Hawks emerged overhead, forcing the Japanese to scatter into the jungle for shelter. The Japanese had marched two full days, crossing streams and marching through mud. Their ankles and feet were inflamed and swollen. So for the day of the 29th, the Japanese were given a rest as they continued to move their supplies under the cover of the jungles. In the meantime, General Close evacuated his aircraft from Gilly Gilly's airstrip number one to go back to Port Moresby just in case. By nightfall, the depleted 61st Battalion stood in defense of the northwestern end of the Rabi airfield, and the 25th Battalion was to the southeast, while a small reserve force covered their rear across the creek. The 12th and 9th battalions were sent forward to prepare a counterattack against the enemy. Meanwhile, the Japanese were facing a critical supply problem that forced Hayashi to reduce the rations to dry biscuits for all of his men. He also assumed that the Tsukoika unit had landed at Tapota and was advancing on the hills north of Rabi. It wouldn't be until September the 2nd when messengers aboard canoes sent word from the Tsuika that they were going to miss the party. Meanwhile, Admiral Mikawa tried his best to help Hayashi out by sending the destroyer Hamakaze with supplies to Rabi on August 27th. 
However, the struggle at the unfinished airstrip prevented the Japanese land forces from contacting the destroyer, and it had to depart without even unloading its cargo. This prompted Mikawa to order Commander Yano Minaru to take 760 SNLF Marines from the 3rd Kure and 5th Yokohama groups to go back up Hayashi. The convoy landed at Wagga Wagga during the night of August the 29th, with the surface forces of Admiral Matsuyama shelling the Allied positions around Gili Gili until midnight. Yano was a very gung-ho officer who was anxious for glory. They got unloaded near the KB mission while their escorts shelled the Allied positions. Yano soon took overall command of the operation, seeking to attack immediately, but was persuaded by Hayashi to let the men rest before. Limited rations and low on ammunition, Yano's men along with the Allies were exhausted and very sick and tired of mud. To add to everyone's misery, malaria was spreading on both sides. In the meantime, the Australians had discovered the two enemy tanks, bogged down and abandoned on the track. They were preparing to counterattack. General Close had not committed all of his forces to fight, as he was receiving scanty reports on the Japanese numbers. But, an order came from General MacArthur, stating, At once, to clear the north shore of Milna Bay, without delay, and submit daily progress reports. The Japanese were in for a nasty surprise when General Close finally swung into action. While the Japanese were resting, several American armored half-tracks were sent in with heavy machine guns behind the Allied lines, alongside additional machine guns and mortar crews to bolster the defenses. When Yano finally ordered his attack across the airstrip at dawn of August the 31st, it would become a climatic battle. The Japanese were shocked as the machine guns began cutting them down. The killing field was littered with their dead. Regardless of the intense Allied firepower, Yano ordered three consecutive Banzai attacks, sending countless Japanese to their deaths, including Commander Hayashi. When in doubt, Banzai it is, I guess. Yano then tried to direct his forces to outflank the 61st men's position, but the Australians realized what was going on and sent forces to take some high grounds overlooking that position, and this forced the Japanese to pull back. With so many bodies littering the killing field, soon Japanese bugles began to sound. Yano had called it quits, and he ordered a general fighting withdrawal. At the exact same time the bugles were going off, Kitty Hawks began to emerge overhead with the sunrise to the dismay of the Japanese. When the Allied defenders heard the bugles going off and saw their air forces swarming in, they went into a frenzy, charging at the retreating enemy. The Australians and Americans literally were tripping over dead Japanese all over the runway as they charged into the invaders. Between the charging defenders and the Kitty Hawks, the Japanese forces scattered in disarray. For the unfortunate Japanese souls, wounded all over the runway, they were all shot by the Australians who had learnt the terrible lesson about taking prisoners. When approaching Japanese dead, the Australians had quickly learnt that the presumably dead would usually spring up with a knife, gun, or grenade to take a few boys down with them. The Pacific War was a very ugly war. During the morning, the 12th Battalion had at last arrived at the front lines, and with the additional forces on hand, 
Close decided to finally launch a counterattack. The Allies began a ruthless advance eastward, harassed by Japanese snipers and ambushes along the way. By the afternoon, all opposition had been crushed, and the Australians had reached the Gamma River, while the Japanese, who were still in disarray, were falling back further east behind the KB mission. The next morning, the Japanese were so shell-shocked and exhausted they did not even notice Kitty Hawks descending upon them, causing carnage. In the late afternoon, the Australians entered the KB mission to add more pain alongside the Kitty Hawk strafing. Meanwhile, Yano's 3rd Kure SNLF Marines were ambushing the Allies along the way as they made it to Gamma River. And to their surprise, they were ambushed there by a company of the 9th Battalion, suffering heavy casualties. They had to fight their way through the KB mission, but during this, Yano was severely injured. On the morning of September the 1st, the Japanese continued to fall back towards the easternmost tip of New Guinea through a series of holding positions, with the Australians in hot pursuit. While pursuing the enemy, Close received false intel from MacArthur indicating the enemy might be landing more forces west of Gili Gili, so Close recalled the 9th Battalion and held them in reserve to see what the enemy was up to. The next day, Makawa was preparing to send additional forces, some 130 SNLF Marines from the 5th Yokohama Group, when he received a message from Yano. We have reached the worst possible situation. We will, together, calmly defend our position to the death. We pray for absolute victory for the Empire, and for long-lasting fortune in battle for you all. Well, with that... Pretty intense information in hand, Mikawa met with General Hayakatake, who was about to send the Aoba Detachment to reinforce the SNLF Marines in Milne Bay, who were also going to arrive in Rabaul around September the 9th. Mikawa broke the news, and they decided to hold off until September the 12th, but the Australians were continuing to drive the invaders further east. When it was apparent the Japanese were not landing additional forces, Close tossed the 9th back into the fight using two small boats. Both sides were suffering horrible casualties to numerous firefights. At one point, a group of Australians attacked a Japanese position held by three machine gunners. Corporal John French killed one of the machine gunners with a Thompson submachine gun, losing his life in the process and posthumously was awarded the Victoria Cross. By September the 4th, the Japanese had finally managed to hold on somewhat while the two IGN destroyers, the Arashi and Hamakaze, were en route to try and rescue them. During the night of the 4th, the destroyers managed to sneak into the bay and evacuated the wounded while simultaneously trying to get information on the status of the operation, in case the attack on Gili Gili could still be done. Now, Mikawa was informed the company commanders were dead and only 50 men were even capable of fighting. So, he had to concede that the situation was hopeless. Mikawa ordered Admiral Matsuyuma, Endeavor to contact the naval landing units, whatever the circumstances, and if at all possible, evacuate them. Many of the Japanese were retreating behind Wagga Wagga by September the 5th, preparing to evacuate when by midday, the Australians captured Wagga Wagga. 
The skirmishes kept going on dangerously close to the evacuation point, and it took all the Japanese had left in them to hold back the Australians until September the 6th, whereupon they finally managed to escape. The IGN was giving up the fight, and they wanted to get the surviving troops out of Milne Bay. On September the 5th, the destroyers would evacuate around 1,300 men, including the wounded Yano, but over 750 Japanese were dead, scattered across the various battlefields and jungle. Many Japanese who had fled into the jungles because of the Kitty Hawks and the Allied units hunting them down did not make it to the evacuation site in time. They were pursued by the Australians and revenge-seeking natives for the village attacks the Japanese had performed. Well, they simply vanished into the jungle, as they say. The Allies lost 167 Australians, 14 Americans, and 59 Papuans. And on a rather sad and special note, I would like to add that those Papuans, they were mostly women who had been raped and bayoneted by the Japanese in the villages. The battle for Milne Bay only lasted a few days, but it had a long-lasting effect. British Field Marshal Slim wrote in his book, Defeat into Victory, the Japanese first undoubted defeat on land was a morale raiser amongst my own troops fighting in Burma. Field Marshal Slim used the event quite effectively to boost his own men fighting in Burma's morale. Australian newspapers called the victory a turning point, and the entire populace cheered the performance of their boys, who faced a battle-hardened Japanese attack. The failure of the Milne Bay attack did a lot to stop the Japanese from hitting Port Moresby, and it allowed General MacArthur to focus his attention on driving the enemy completely out of New Guinea. I would like to end this one off with a rare oddity for General MacArthur. During this time, he kept his ears open to how the rest of the war was going on, and when he was talking to a British intelligence officer, he was given news Sir Winston Churchill had recently flown from Washington to Moscow, to Cairo, and then to Gibraltar. And in a very un-MacArthur fashion, he did the unthinkable. He praised another military figure, and not just that, a man who had convinced FDR to go with the Europe for a strategy. For all intents and purposes, a man who had caused a lot of anger in MacArthur, who had wanted more resources for the Pacific. He said this. If disposal of all the Allied decorations were today placed by Providence in my hands, my first act would be to award the Victoria Cross to Winston Churchill. No one of those who wear it deserves it more than he. A flight of 10,000 miles through hostile and foreign skies may be the duty of young pilots, but for a statesman burdened with the world's cares, it is an act of inspiring gallantry and valor. This was a very rare and generous comment from MacArthur for a man who had caused him so many headaches for his Pacific campaign. Operation RE was a total failure, and became one of Japan's first land defeats of the Pacific War. Alongside the loss at Midway and the Solomons, it looked like the tide of war was beginning to turn. 
The failure at Milne Bay also meant General Horry would not be receiving any additional support in his overland drive to hit Port Moresby. The Japanese were now beginning to shift their focus on Guadalcanal, rather than launching a second amphibious assault against New Guinea. Yet while all of this was going down in Milne Bay, there was still fighting going on along the Kokoda Track. Back along the Kokoda Track, Brigadier Potts was preparing a defensive position at Ifogi, after being battered all the way back in Uzurava and having to make a haphazardous fighting withdrawal along the way. The situation did not look good. The Allies had given up their main supply base at Mayola, but luckily, the Milne Bay situation was game-changing. With Milne Bay secured, this meant more reinforcements could come up the track, and General Rawal deployed the 27th Battalion to help Potts. General Rawal had been keeping the 27th Battalion in reserve just in case they would be needed at Milne Bay, but as the situation looked better over there, he did not hesitate to toss them onto the track instead. By September the 5th, the 27th established a defensive position on Mission Ridge, a high ground due south of Ifogi, while the rest of the Maraba force were falling back further south to Brigade Hill. While the Australians were digging in for the night, they saw a column of small lights snaking slowly down the dark slopes towards Ifogi River. Quite a disheartening scene. General Hori was on his way. The Japanese made short work seizing the deserted village of Ifogi, but when they began probing further, they were met by gunfire from the Australian defensive positions. Alongside this, since they were now much closer to Port Moresby, aerial attacks became much more intense. Eight marauders and four kitty hawks hit the Japanese on the morning of September the 7th, inflicting heavy casualties, prompting the Japanese to name the trek Hell Valley as they moved further down. Hell Valley was quite wide, with a large canopy that aided the Japanese from further aerial attacks. This did not, however, aid General Hori too much, as he had gone so far now, his messengers had to run as far back as Kokoda, a three-day trip by foot to grab the nearest radio transmitter to demand air support. Hori decided to take the 2nd Battalion up the western foot of Brigade Hill to try and cut off the enemy's retreat while his 3rd Battalion made a frontal assault against Mission Ridge. During the night, the Japanese artillery bombarded the Australian positions to soften them up for the assault. Major Hori marched his men upon the western flank, but they were forced to a literal crawl because of how steep the ridge was. Despite the difficulty, Hori managed to get his men to scale the ridge, and before dawn, they had cut off three Australian battalions from their headquarters. The Australians reacted by hunkering down in foxholes along the sides of the track, raining fire upon the invaders, while the South Seas Detachment began the frontal assault early in the morning of August the 8th. The Japanese were relentless, but the Australians held firm, repelling them with rifle fire and grenades. Gradually, the 27th Battalion was pushed back, dangerously cutting off many units. Potts realized the situation and ordered the 14th and the 16th to try and break through Hori's position to safety. They had to fight through artillery bombardments and heavy rain while simultaneously charging against the Japanese position. Only a single company of the 16th managed to break through and reach the HQ. By the late afternoon, Potts HQ was forced to disassemble and withdraw towards Minari, while the 14th and 16th tried desperately to make a fighting withdrawal. 
Their fighting withdrawal went through some rough terrain, leading to miscommunication and confusion, and soon the withdrawal fell into complete disorder. The Australians received 87 deaths and 77 wounded during the chaos for Mission Ridge and Brigade Hill. Historian Nicholas Anderson described it as, quote, an unmitigated calamity for the Australians. Brigadier Potts, as a result, would be relieved of command. By September the 9th, the first elements of the battered Australian battalions began to arrive at Minari. But because the Japanese were hot on their heels, Ponce was forced to bypass Minari and continued withdrawing south towards Oribawa. The Australians fell back to a high point known as Oribawa Ridge, some 25 miles north of Port Moresby, well within sight of the Papuan Gulf. While things looked doomed for the Allies, General Hori faced an even worse supply problem. On top of how long and difficult it was for the carriers to bring supplies over the track, air attacks on the track and on ships coming from Rabaul were increasing. The supply chain had been strained resulting in more native carriers deserting. It was a domino effect getting worse each day. Because of the supply issues, General Hayakatake ordered Hori to halt on the southern slopes of the Owen Stanley Range. However, Hori was determined to achieve victory, and so he pushed the men on further south towards Port Moresby, despite the terrible state of his supply line. This was all building up for a climactic battle. Meanwhile, if you recall, General Kawaguchi told his superiors basically to, well, F off when they prompted him to take the Tokyo Express, and instead advocated for a leapfrog maneuver to Guadalcanal from the Shortland Islands using barges. Well, his superiors eventually won out, and Kawaguchi was forced to grab one ticket aboard the Tokyo Express alongside 1,200 of his men on August 31st. Their trip was met by air forces from Henderson Field, but under the cover of darkness, Kawaguchi did manage to land on Guadalcanal, and he took full command of all the Japanese forces on the island. His first task was to prepare an offensive to retake Henderson Field, the Japanese won a minor victory during all of this when the submarine I-26 managed to hit the USS Saratoga with a torpedo causing quite a bit of damage to her. Saratoga was forced to depart for repairs, taking along with her a very wounded Admiral Fletcher. Fletcher received a gash on his head from the attack, which earned him a purple heart but it also seems it prompted Admirals King and Nimitz to move him out of command because of his lackluster performance. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at The Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I have content going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Check it out, it means a lot to me. The Australians simply can't catch a break on Green Hell. General Hori has his eye on the prize, and despite being ordered to stop where he was, 
he decided to push forward to try and pluck Port Moresby. However, General Horry's supply lines were stretched far, far too thin, and he would soon learn that the hard way.